If you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, go ahead and take it out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Twelve days till Christmas. We get to meditate over the last uh, few weeks here leading up to uh, the Christmas day. We are going to meditate on Christmas, meditate on the birth of Christ, meditate on all that it means for us. We've been studying through the book of Revelation. We know the end of the story. We know what happens at the end. We know that Christ comes back as a conquering ruler, a conquering king. And I want us to meditate on that first coming, the first advent, being born as a little baby. Have you ever had that experience at Christmas, opening up presents? And you get the one, you open it up, you're super excited, you, you uh, take the wrapping paper off, you tie, untie the bow, you look at it, and you ask, what is this? And you know that your, your parents mean well, you know that your siblings mean well, and you look at it and you go, I don't know what it is, and you have to have that explanation. I don't know if your parents give you explanations. This gift comes with an explanation. That's what my mom would always say. This gift, hang on, it comes with an explanation. If you look at the Bible, there are certain places in the scriptures where we look and we go, what is it? What does that mean? Even so much so that we tend to, consciously or or unconsciously, we tend to divide the Bible into really two main sections, practical teaching that's easy to apply, and then parts of the Bible that we just kind of go, well, it's there, but we don't really know what it's supposed to do. Maybe some narratives in the Bible that you read and you go, okay, I get it. I know that that happened and it's historical uh, reality, but I don't really know what we're supposed to do with that. But since 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is true, and it says that all scripture is inspired by God, we don't need to separate the Bible into two categories of practical, relevant, applicable, and then the rest of it, that we don't really know why it's there. All of the Bible is practical. All of the Bible is relevant. All of the Bible is applicable. The question is, are we going to put in the work to see it, to understand it, and to behold the glory of God? One of the most amazing places where this is seen is in the genealogies in the Bible. You come to a genealogy in the Bible, and it's one of those places that you typically meet when you go through a read through the Bible in a year program, and probably towards the end of January, you start hitting these genealogical records in the Old Testament, and your eyes kind of roll back and glaze over, and you just have to get through it because you have to check it off your list. But you kind of look and go, why is it there? What's the purpose of this, this list of names? You ask somebody what their favorite portion of Scripture is. I'll typically say something in the Psalms because they're so personal, they're so emotive, they're emotional. Maybe they'll say Revelation because they're curious about the end times. Maybe they'll say James because they think that it is practical and easily applicable, and I don't have to do much work to understand What's going on there? I've never heard anyone say my favorite portion of scripture is Matthew's introduction to his gospel with a list of names. That's it, my favorite portion. Memorize it, good to go. But just like we would do on Christmas morning, opening a present saying, what is this? I want us to open the scriptures and read the beginning of Matthew's gospel and ask, what is this? What is this teaching us? What is this telling us? And I I think that as we dive into it, my prayer is that by the end of our time, somebody coming to you and saying, what am I supposed to get out of this? That you would be able to say, oh, there's so much glory there in just these lists of names. And I want to show you Christ. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Let's read together. 
This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab was the father of Nishan, Nishan was the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Etzor. And Etzor was the father of Zadok, Zadok was the father of Akim, Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer, Eliezer was the father of Matan, Matan was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Father, we, we love your word, and we confess that often when we come to your word, we do not see what we're supposed to see. We, we don't feel what we should feel as we open the literal words of God. You, God, God breathes these words. You breathe these into existence. You spoke clearly, and we have a record of it, and we know exactly what it is that you said and exactly what it is that you meant by what you said. What a privilege to open your word and and we confess that there are places in your word that we tend to skim over because we just don't see. We don't give time to slow down, to observe. And so, Father, we want to take time this morning to see how Christmas transforms everything. Our relationships, our interactions with one another, with you, our expectations of how you work and who you are. Everything changed at Christmas. And so, Father, I pray that you would be gracious to us this morning. Encourage our hearts as we study this list of names and look deeply into it to understand exactly what it is that we are to take from it. May we see your glory on display. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes now that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help and the divine assistance of the Spirit in our hearts to illuminate our understanding, or else we will not get what we need to get out of these verses. We will not feel what we should feel. We will not be affected the way we are supposed to be affected. So Holy Spirit, show us Christ. May he be our delight this morning. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 opens 
the New Testament. And with the introduction to the New Testament, instead of immediately launching into the birth of Christ, Matthew serves us 17 verses containing nearly 50 names, covering a period of over 2,000 years, almost up to 2,000 years. It's literally, in the Greek, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Biblios, Genesis, Jesus Christu. The book of the Genesis of Christ. This is the Genesis of the New Testament. And as you can see in verse 1, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. So what Matthew's going to do is show us that Jesus both comes from the lineage of Abraham to fulfill exactly who the Messiah is going to be from Abraham's lineage, and then also the Davidic lineage of being a king, that Jesus is from the lineage of David to be a king. Matthew shows us so many things, and there are many implications from these verses. I just want to look at two. I want to look at two this morning as we dive deeply into this list of names. When Jesus is born, he transforms everything. And I just want to look at two aspects of what he transforms that I believe can be seen in these uh, these names. Two aspects of transformation that Jesus brings when he's born. Number one, Jesus transforms our relationships. Jesus transforms the way that we relate to one another. I could give you number two right now because we're going to look at, after this, we're going to see Jesus transforming our expectations, transforming the way that we think life is going to go and the way that we rest in who God is. But first, let's begin with the way that Jesus transforms our relationships. As we look at these names, as we look at this list that Matthew gives us, I think there are three very clear markers of people groups that are clearly changed by the coming of Christ. The first is that women are honored. Women are honored. If we're asking the question, what kinds of relationships are changed at Christmas? How does Jesus transform relationships? The first that we can clearly see here in this list of names is that women and their status and the way that they are honored and dignified and respected is completely changed at the coming of Christ. There are four women that I want to look at in this list. There are five given total, but four that I want to look at. Tamar, who's in verse 3. She gave birth to Perez by Judah, which is the story in Genesis 38. Also Rahab, which is in, she's in verse 5. She gave birth to Boaz by Solomon, and that is in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 21. Ruth, you know Ruth, chapter 1, verse 5 here in Matthew. She gave birth to Obed by Boaz, which is in Ruth chapter 4, verse 21 as well. And then Bathsheba, she's in verse 6. She gave birth to Solomon by David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 4. Now, why four women? Why identify four women? Why focus on four women? I think it's important to do so not only because the text is going to do that, but also because of the day and age that we live in. You will often hear people that will say that the Bible is this archaic book and it's misogynistic and it looks down on women. Uh, one of uh, my good friends, professor at Masters University, Dr. Will Varner, says, quote, it has become fashionable among some feminist writers to castigate biblical writers for their sexism, along with terms like patriarchalism and male chauvinism. 
The entire Judeo-Christian tradition has often been blamed for perpetuating an unhealthy domination of men over women. A closer examination of the biblical writers against the backdrop of their contemporary culture, however, reveals quite a different picture. Rather than advocating the oppressive treatment of women, the biblical authors' attitudes and actions towards women often went against the grain of their contemporary culture and actually to eventually elevate the status of women. Christianity, in reality, helped to upgrade the status of women. How did it do that? How did Jesus transform the relationship? Well, to begin with, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Let's do a little bit of a history lesson of what the Bible said about women and how women could interact in society. Exodus chapter 23, verse 17, says that women were exempt from the requirements to attend the annual festivals. They didn't have to go, specifically because the Mosaic law understood that wives and mothers would have a lot of pressure on them because of their children, because of their husbands, and their responsibilities in their home. So there was an allowance made. You don't have to come up to the festival. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to the festival. You, you could to. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 9, Hannah goes to the tabernacle. You could if you were able to, but you didn't have to. In Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, women were allowed to serve at the door of the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 6, verse 2, women were allowed to take a Nazarite vow along with men. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, women were allowed to hear the word of God as it was taught uh, with men, alongside of the men. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 20 through 21, they were allowed to engage in Music ministry along with the men, that's Miriam, that's the sister of Moses, who began the, the worship through song after the parting of the Red Sea. They were also allowed to prophesy alongside men in Exodus chapter 15 with Miriam, in Judges chapter 4 with Deborah, in 2 Kings chapter 22, and Nehemiah chapter 6. There was really only one thing that women were not allowed to do, and that was to serve as priests. And ultimately, there were many men that weren't allowed to serve as priests either, right? The priestly lineage was only uh, through that tribe of Levi. And so Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, and Numbers chapter 18, verses 1 through 7 say, uh, through the tribe of Levi, and that is the, the male, uh, the men that are in the tribe of Levi, those alone are able to be priests. But other than that one restriction in the Old Testament, there was far much more freedom for women than is often thought. And I think that that's important to understand because when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's going to go back to that reality. What changed during the intertestamental period is that the rabbinic traditions, the, the oral Torah, the, the traditions of men had turned uh, what the Old Testament said about women and had turned that into something that was oppressive. The Bible never did that. That was rabbinic tradition. Let me give you four examples of this rabbinic tradition that grew up during the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. These are four social norms that existed during the time of Jesus that he is going to transform. These are not from the Bible. These are from the Mishnah, which is Jewish oral Torah and tradition that's passed down and now been written down and codified. In one section, we are told, number one, that women were to be shunned in public social contact. Quote, Engage not in too much conversation with women. This is from the Mishnah. This is from Jewish oral tradition. Engage not in too much conversation with women. They said this with regard to one's own wife. How much more then does the rule apply to another man's wife? As long as a man engages in too much conversation with women, he causes evil to himself because he goes idle from the study of the Torah so that his end will be that he will inherit Gehenna. 
So don't talk to women because you might go to hell. That's what it's saying. Number two, women were not to be publicly taught the Torah, according to the Mishnah. Again, this is not true in the Old Testament. This is Joshua chapter 8, verse 35, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. The Bible has example after example of women being with men, being taught the Torah. But the Mishnah said that women were not to be taught the Torah. Quote, may the words of the Torah be burned that they should be handed over to a woman. This is the attitude about women's innate inability to learn the law, to learn the Torah, that made that second temple that Herod uh, had, it was uh, built by Herod, that had that court of the women. You need to stay far away. You're not allowed to enter anymore. It still exists in Orthodox Judaism even today. Number three, women were restricted from communicating the Torah to others, even to their own children. The Mishnah says, quote, an unmarried man must not be a teacher of children, nor may a woman be a teacher of children. This restriction applied to public reading of scripture in the synagogue, even to pronouncing the benediction after a meal in your home. Finally, number four, just some examples of how women were treated during that intertestamental period of time and into the beginning of the New Testament. Women had no right to bear public witness in a judicial case. Again, in the Mishnah, though the woman is subject to the commandments, she is disqualified from giving evidence. So she could not be a witness. She could not give evidence. First century Jewish historian Josephus characterized the attitude of those towards women when he said, quote, let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Don't listen to them. Don't trust them. All of this, again, to be clear, went far beyond what the Old Testament said. Now, think of how Jesus transforms this. Think of what happened when Jesus is born. Think of how he spoke about women. Women were never in any time in the New Testament that we see Jesus speaking, women were never the butt of cruel jokes. They were never put down by Jesus because they were women. In fact, in his sermons, he used examples of women. Uh, he used examples of women to rebuke the faithlessness of the men in that crowd, in that generation. He used the widow of uh, Zarephath to rebuke the men of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, verses 28 through 29. He used the queen of Sheba to rebuke the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, verse 31. At least twice in his parables, Jesus used a woman in a striking way to illustrate amazing faith. The persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, the woman searching for the lost coin in Luke chapter 15. Jesus is constantly going to give example after example of how amazing women are in their faith. Jesus never uttered a word that would support the idea of treating women as inferior to men, ever. They would always be honored in his teaching. They would always be honored in his preaching and never humiliated. Uh, in many churches today, women are looked down upon. They often in cruel, they endure cruel comments, specifically by husbands, which should never be the case. Whether it's a sarcastic, biting, put-down you can say afterwards, I was only joking, which if you have to say it was a joke, it was a terrible joke. We, men, we should not in any way dishonor the women at CBC. Our wives first and foremost, and then every single woman around us. 
Jesus transformed the way that women were seen and were honored. Think about how he related to women. John chapter 4, you know it very well. The Samaritan woman, he sits down next to her. He speaks with her. He does so in a way that the disciples, when they show up, they go, whoa, 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 you're talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman? This isn't right. He revealed himself as Messiah to her. He always sought to minister to women, never to ignore them. John chapter 8, the woman who's caught in adultery, Jesus rebukes her accusers who had conveniently ignored the guilty man in this story. Jesus never approved of her actions. He calls them sinful, right? I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You were involved in sin, but stop sinning. Go and sin no more because I've given you grace. Think of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Not only does, does Jesus teach Mary, he's instructing her from the law, but his words to Mary indicate that she's chosen the better portion than Martha, serving and being busy with serving Jesus says, actually, it's better to sit and to hear the Torah, to interact with the Bible. While rabbis in that day were teaching that women were intellectually inferior and incapable of studying, Jesus actually commends Mary for her desire to study the Word. It was women to whom Jesus chose to reveal himself after the resurrection. First, he reveals himself to women. They were the last ones at the cross other than John. All the male disciples had fled away. They were the first ones at the tomb. Rabbis had said that they weren't reliable witnesses. And Jesus says, those are the ones I want to go to. Those are the ones I want to talk to. Luke chapter 8 tells us that many women followed Jesus and helped to minister to him. Luke chapter 7, uh, we have that formerly immoral woman who cried tears of thanksgiving on Jesus' feet and dried them with her hair without any fear of rebuke whatsoever from Jesus. John chapter 12, Mary felt so free in the presence of Christ that she anoints his feet with that costly perfume, even when the other disciples are rebuking her. Christian novelist and scholar Dorothy Sayers said it this way, quote, They had never known a man like this man, and there's never been such another, a prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them nor patronized them, who never made jokes about them, who took their questions seriously, who took them as he found them. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and the deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. And that continued in the New Testament with Paul commending his female co-workers in the gospel, Yodia uh, and Syntyche. And Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, uh, in, in, as, as far as getting into the kingdom. And you being a man doesn't make you more able to get into the kingdom than a woman. And here in this genealogy, we see four women that are handpicked by Matthew, named and named for the purpose of showing us Jesus is going to undo what had been done during that intertestamental period. He's going to transform the way that women were uh, thought of the way that they were looked down on, he's going to bring to elevate them back to the status that God sees them as. Again, I think that our church needs to have this deep down in our souls because we are complementarian. We believe that clearly the Bible defines men and women with distinct roles and responsibilities. But too often in complementarian churches, you can pull that pendulum so far over that you say that we're different even regarding worth, honor, value, and dignity. That is not true. 
In fact, before God defines roles and responsibilities in the book of Genesis, he defines their equality by saying, let's make man and woman in our image. Men and women are made in the image of God. Yes, they're made differently. Different roles, different responsibilities, different functions. But every single husband here, we can attest to the fact that we all married up. Not a one of us married down. We all married up. So we know that though we are made equal in the sight of God, as far as our worth, honor, value, and dignity, we are so thankful that God has given women to this church to be helpers, to be encouragers, to be ministers, to do gospel ministry in a way that us as guys just could never make it happen by ourselves. Jesus transformed the way that women were seen, were treated, and were elevated. And I think that we should take a page out of his book and see that transformation and live it out here. We have amazing women at our church that we need to honor, elevate, esteem, and give God thanks for. Number two, a second people group that was transformed, not only women, but also Gentiles. God, in sending his son, Jesus Christ, transformed the way that Gentiles were viewed. Let's go back to these four women. You have Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, and you have Bathsheba. If we just look at these four women, don't look at anybody else in this list that we could, just look at these four women. All four women are either Gentile or married to a Gentile. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. They're Gentiles. They're outsiders. Ruth was a Moabite woman, so she's a Gentile. She's an outsider. And then Bathsheba, though she is more than likely Jewish, she's married to a Gentile. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a Hittite. Similar to the way that women were viewed in first century in Israel, in Jesus's time, as being outsiders, being far away from the kingdom, being a man is better than being a woman. Similar to that kind of thinking, so too Jew versus Gentile. The Jews were looked upon favorably. Gentiles were seen as those who were way beyond the bounds of salvation. And if God's going to save them, it's going to be pretty difficult. It's going to be hard, and they have to convert even to becoming a Jew. They're pretty much hopeless to being saved. And then Matthew comes along. You realize Matthew is going to open his gospel with Gentiles scattered throughout this lineage. And then he's going to close his gospel, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all the nations. Matthew's going to do what we would call in literature an inclusio, where he's going to bookend the beginning and the end with the nations, with Gentiles. The gospel is going to go to everyone, not just to the Jew. Early in Matthew, we see the wise men who show up. The wise men, the, the wise men from the east, the Gentiles from Persia. They come and they have greater faith than even most of the Jews in Jesus' day. Matthew records the centurion's son, a Gentile, being healed by Jesus. Matthew records the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, a Syrophoenician. She's way outside of being a Jew. And Jesus heals her daughter. Jesus heals two demon-possessed men who are in the region of Decapolis, who are Gentiles. Those two miraculous feedings that we know of in the Bible, the feeding the 5,000, the feeding the 4,000. Feeding the 5,000, which is probably the feeding the 25,000, because it's only 5,000 men. That was to Jewish people in a Jewish region. 
the 4,000, feeding the 4,000 was in the region of the Decapolis to Gentiles. Jesus is saying, I'm giving myself to Jew and Gentile alike. There's no distinction. He says that he has come not only for his own sheep, but to those that are his sheep that are outside of the fold of Israel. This is John chapter 10, verse 16. I've come for Jew and for Gentile alike. And Paul picks up on this when he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for Jew and for Gentile. First to the Jew, sent to the Jew, but then to the Gentile. And I praise the Lord for that kind of transformation because I am definitely not a Jew. And if the gospel was only given to Jews, I would be outside of salvation. I'd be outside of the gospel. And God said, graciously, we're going to send the gospel to the nations, to the to the uh, ethnic groups that are all around the world. During the time of Christ, Jews were looked upon favorably. Gentiles cursed, mocked. And Jesus elevates their status and says, I'm coming to both, Jew and Gentile alike. There's many other ways, not only the way that Jesus transforms uh, the way women are honored and the way that Gentiles are viewed. We could go through list after list of relational transformation that happens when Jesus shows up on the scene. He transforms the relationships that Jews had with each other. We see even in his disciples that he calls. He calls a tax collector and a zealot. You you wouldn't have two greater enemies than those two individuals in the time of Jesus. A tax collector who willingly turned against his own people, his own Jewish brethren, and worked for Rome, the enemy, and a zealot who was trying to kill the Romans. Jesus says, we can bring those together. We can bring white collar, blue collar. We can bring different... Uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. It doesn't matter. I can transform it all. But relationship number three, and obviously the most important one, not only the way that women are honored, not only the way that Gentiles are viewed, but finally number three, the way that our relationship with the Father is forever changed by the coming of Christ. The way that our relationship with the Father, the way that our relationship with God himself forever changed because of the coming of Jesus in order to reconcile for himself a people that now can be his own possession, now can be his own family, he must redeem and fix what looks and seems unredeemable and unfixable. That's why in this genealogy, there's something so special about how careful Matthew is to remind you of the messes of the backgrounds of all of these people. I mean, just look at this list. This list is filled with a whole lot of winners. And I put that in quotation marks and sarcastically said, these are really, really the lowest of the low people. Beginning with Abraham. You guys remember his story, lying multiple times, even though he, God said, don't do that. Stop doing that. I'll protect your wife. And he keeps lying. Isaac does the same thing. Jacob does the same thing. What about Judah? In verse three, we get to Judah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we don't need Zerah at all. We don't need that. But Matthew says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember Judah and how this came about. So I want you to remember Tamar. I want you to remember that she had two kids. And I want you to remember, in our minds, we can go back to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar is crazy. I mean, when people say the Bible's boring, you didn't read Genesis 38, because Genesis 38 is insane. You remember the story, right? Judah has three sons. He has multiple sons, but he has three that, uh, one marries Tamar, and uh, 
dies. Second, Onan, he's the one that through levirate marriage is supposed to go and marry Tamar and give her offspring, and he doesn't, and God strikes him dead. So Judah says, son number three, I don't want you to go near this woman. <laughs> People that go near this woman end up dying. My firstborn son, my secondborn Onan, I'm not letting my third son go be with Tamar. And so Tamar says, I need to be cared for, I need to be provided for, and I'm going to get kids. And so she dresses up like a prostitute and ends up finding Judah. And Judah, why is he going to a prostitute? I mean, like I said, a list of winners here. Judah's going to find the prostitute, and in doing that, finds Tamar, who he doesn't know that she's dressing up like a prostitute. She's sleeping with her father-in-law, and they produce these boys. They produce Perez and Zara. If, if you wanted to clean up the lineage to say, look at how amazing Jesus is. He's holy and nothing bad has ever happened in the background leading to him being born. You wouldn't start right off the bat in verse two by mentioning Judah and then clarifying, oh, remember how Perez was born? Remember him? It's crazy the way that Matthew's highlighting that because he wants to show us when Jesus is born, he brings transformation to that which seems unredeemable. Think of Rahab, verse 5, she is a prostitute. Think of Ruth. She's a Moabite woman. She's a Moabitess. You remember how the Moabites began as a people group? Genesis chapter 19. Remember Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Lot leaves. His wife turned into the pillar of salt. So out of Sodom and Gomorrah, everyone is destroyed and only three people survive. Lot and his two daughters. And his two daughters say, well, there's no more men for us to marry, and we can't have offspring, so let's get our dad drunk and sleep with him. So they do that, and they have two sons. To one, she bears a son and names him Moab. To the other, she bears a son and names him Ben-Ami, where we get the Ammonites from. So the Moabites and the Ammonites come from Genesis chapter 19 from, from Lot and from this crazy debased situation. So much so that this, this people group, the, the Moabites, they continue in their just absolute uh, idolatry and depravity. They were very well known for sacrificing uh, babies alive, passing them through the fire to the god Molech. They were so vile, they were so wicked that the men that came from Moab, when they went to Israel, they were not allowed to enter into the congregation or the assembly in the tabernacle or the temple for 10 generations, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. You were not allowed, if you were a Moabite man and you wanted to convert to Judaism, you were not allowed to enter into the temple or the tabernacle for 10 generations because of how wicked the lineage of the Moabite people was. We have Judah and Tamar. We have Rahab. We have Ruth. What about Bathsheba? Did you guys notice in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon. And that's all he had to say. And he does it for so many other people, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. But here he stops. Bathsheba had been the wife of Uriah. To jog your memory, to remind you of the sinfulness of King David and how Solomon ultimately came into existence. 
David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. You and I may have some serious skeletons in our family closets. We'd be hard-pressed to rival the skeletons in the closets of the lineage of Jesus. And Jesus does that on purpose to remind you there is no such thing as a person who is unredeemable, who is unfixable. You come as broken as possible to Jesus, and he says, I can work with that. Look at what I already worked with. Jesus came to bring light into the darkest places in our lives. That's why we sing, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. In the darkest place, God says, I can bring light. The hopes and the fears of all of the years are met in Christ. He transforms our relationship in honoring women. He transforms our relationship between Jew and Gentile and how Gentiles are viewed. And he transforms our relationship with God the Father by redeeming us, by fixing what's broken, and now bringing us into the family of God. He is our Messiah. That's why it says in verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who's going to come and save us from our sins. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners. And I have a whole family tree filled with them. And I can redeem all of it. Jesus came to transform our relationships. And number two, Jesus came to transform our expectations. Jesus came to transform our expectations. There are three expectations that I see that fill out this list, this lineage that can teach us about the way that we view God and the way that God works in our lives. Expectation number one, Jesus transforms our expectation of how God works. Jesus transforms the coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ, Christmas itself transforms the way that we expect God to work, how God works in our lives. This whole genealogy is a resume. It's a resume that is is given to declare Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. And there's an art to writing a resume. You know that art, right? There's an art to writing a resume where you find a way to brag without bragging. You find a way to boast about what you've done without coming across as if you're boasting. And so you tend to, when you're writing a resume, put all the best things you've done and either leave out the, the worst things, the bad parts, or put them in a way, in a place where they can kind of get mixed. You, don't, you never highlight those things. People tinkered with their resumes back then. People tinkered with their genealogies. That's what Herod the Great did. He wanted to prove to his people that he earned the throne, that he deserved the throne, that he had a right to the throne. And so he tinkered with his uh, genealogical record. And we know that. Maybe that's why Matthew's saying, I don't want to tinker with anything. I want to show you all the bad stuff. Because I want you to know that Jesus has no fear whatsoever, no shame whatsoever of being born to sinful, messed up people. We have already seen there's women in this list. There are Gentiles in this list. There are racial outsiders. There's uh, gender outsiders. There's moral outsiders. Nobody would have seen this coming. That's why I say Jesus' birth transforms our expectations of how God works. We think that God works in a squeaky clean way, in a I, I know exactly how to do this way, in I don't need to use broken, messed up, fallen people. And people during Jesus' day would have thought that the Messiah is going to be born and he's going to only go for the Pharisees, those who have their act all cleaned up. They, they look good. They, they are working hard. The Jews wanted their Messiah to be a perfect king, a mighty conqueror, a judge to end all oppression. So you better be good. 
But if that's how Jesus would have come, he would not have been able to help us. As one writer said, Christ came with the blood of adulterers and murderers and Gentiles flowing in his veins. And so doing, he can identify with us and save us because he, as our king, shared in our humanity. And my friends, if God did that back then, isn't it possible that when God does something unexpected in your life today, that it's not that he's forgotten you, it's not that he's neglected you, he knows exactly what he's doing and he's working, but our expectation of how he's working is completely different than the way that he actually does work. That's why this list is so important for us. Just think about all the greatest things that seem to happen in the Bible, they happen when it seems like the plan is, is deviated from. It seems like what you're expecting to happen doesn't happen that way. Let's think about Jesus being born. Mary did not expect to be pregnant Mary expected to have a wedding to Joseph, a marriage, a union, and then get pregnant. And Jesus is born to her, as we sang, this virgin, completely deviating from the plan. Would Mary have had it any other way once Jesus was born? No. That's why she sings that Magnificat. My Lord is born. My Savior is born. God's plan is always better than our plan. Always better. And I know we have the privilege, since we are a small church, we have the privilege of getting into each other's lives. We know what trials we're going through, what struggles we're going through. We know the difficulties that we are experiencing. And my encouragement to all of you today is to, to bring those expectations that you have. This is what I thought life was going to be like. This is how life is. And let somebody around you, let a dear brother or sister around you say, God's not making a mistake. God works in unexpected ways. He's working in your chaos for your good. Charles Spurgeon used to say that life for us is like walking into the back of a theater where there was a three-hour play going on and we caught two minutes of it and we walk out. And we all say, that made no sense. That's what life's like. We're just a tiny little blip in the timeline of God's redemptive history. And sometimes we look and we go, this makes no sense. But God in his grace through this lineage is reminding us it would have made no sense to Judah and Tamar what was going on. It would have made no sense to Ruth what was going on, to Naomi what was going on, to Boaz what was going on. And through it all, God is weaving together this amazing tapestry of hope in the midst of hopelessness and grace in the midst of despair. Jesus' birth transforms, number one, our expectation of how God works. Number two, Jesus' birth transforms our expectation of when God works. Jesus' birth transforms our expectation of when God works. Just quickly, it takes a long time for God to fulfill his promises. You look back at Abraham, and then we've got generation after generation after generation, 2,000 years that pass before promises that were given to Abraham actually happen. You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promise. He may seem to be working very slowly or even forgetting his promises. But when his promises come true, and they always will, they will burst forth in glory beyond anything you could possibly imagine. Jesus' birth transforms our expectation of how God works, our expectation of when God works, and finally, number three, our expectation of why God works. Why is God working? What is he doing? Why, what's the motivation for why he was being born? 
And I think many people come to God and they think that God, the way that God works and why he works is to whip you into shape, hurry up and try harder, get your act together, and just stop being a mistake. Just stop being a mistake. And I think that there is something fascinating about this genealogical record. The way that Matthew ends it in verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14. So three groups of 14. It's unusually tidy. Three 14s, we could also say it a different way, it's six sets of seven. Six sets of seven. Making Jesus the seventh seven. In the Bible, you know that the number seven is highly significant. On the week of creation, on the seventh day, God rested from his work on that seventh day. It was a day of rest. In the Mosaic Law, every seven years, the farmer is going to let the land lie fallow. Don't plant anything there. Let it rest. Give it a chance to replenish its nutrients. And so every seventh year represented rest. In Leviticus 25, the last of the seventh period of seven years, so the 49th year was to be a year of jubilee. In that year, all the slaves were to be freed, all the debts were forgiven, all the land, all the people were to have rest from their weariness and their burdens. Matthew gives us a very specific genealogical record with the seventh seven being Jesus, meaning he is the ultimate rest beyond any rest we could ever have. And you can only find your true rest in him. That's why I say Jesus being born transforms our expectations of why he's being born, why he's working. He's not working to say, do better, try harder, fix the problems, and then I'll love you. Like some tyrant king who has his arms folded saying, you better get your act together. No, Jesus says, I want to be born to give you rest. I want to be born to help you. I want to be born in the midst of your weariness, in the midst of your burdens, in the midst of all of your hardships, especially your struggle with sin. I have come to give you an end to that fight because I'm going to fight it for you so that you can just come to me weary, broken, and take my burden on you, which is light. And anyone who comes to Jesus Christ, he says, I will in no way cast them out. I'm never going to turn them away. This is great news. This is why it's the gospel. Good news. It's news. It's not good advice or good counsel or a good list of things that we have to do. It's good news. It's good. It's already been done. This is just news. It's a report of what God's done. He's already finished it. And it's yours to receive, to believe, to cling to by the blood of Jesus. Jesus transforms our relationships, women are honored and valued and esteemed. Gentiles are brought in. They're not outsiders anymore. And our relationship with God is no longer one where wrath is expected, but now we have forgiveness and reconciliation and union with Christ. Jesus transforms our expectations of how God works, when God works, and why God works. So as we wrap all this up, just two points of conclusion. Number one, I pray that just a short, simple straightforward study of these names, this list of names, I pray that, number one, it would help you to value all of Scripture. Value all of it. There is so much to be seen, even in a list of names. 
Don't ever read the Bible and think, well, this is the boring part, or this is the part I need to skip, or I want to get to the good stuff. Value all of Scripture. Like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, if someone were reading this passage and you asked them, do you understand what you are reading? And they said, I have no idea. What is this? Could you show them how amazing the genealogical record Matthew gives us is and how Scripture points? This passage points to so many facets of the glory of God. Could you do that? And finally, number two, don't just value all of Scripture, but specifically at this time, at Christmas, glory in all that Jesus is for you. Everything that he did in being born was for you so that you could be brought in, that you could be forgiven, that your sin deserving of wrath and of hell itself could be done for, paid in full. How did he do that? He did that by stepping into our world, living life with us. This is such a glorious thing. In 1961, the Russians put the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin, and Khrushchev said, that when Gagarin went into space, he looked around and he didn't see God. God wasn't there. There must not be a God. In response to this, C.S. Lewis wrote an article called The Seen Eye. And Lewis said that if there is a God who made us, he created us, then we could never discover him by going up into the air. God would not relate to human beings the way a man on the second floor relates to a man on the first floor. He would relate to us the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare is the creator of Hamlet's world and of Hamlet himself. Hamlet can only know Shakespeare exists if Shakespeare himself reveals that to him. So the only way to know about God is if God has revealed himself to us. And the way that God did that is by writing himself into our story as Jesus Christ the God-man. Christmas tells us that God didn't merely write information about himself. That would have been glorious enough. Scripture tells us, Christmas teaches that God wrote himself into the drama of this story. He came into creation. He lived among us. He felt what it feels like to be human. He cried with us. He laughed with us. He knows heartache. He knows pain. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. In fact, they killed him. But in that death, Jesus became life for all who would trust him alone for salvation. That's the reason to rejoice. That's the reason that we sing Emmanuel, God with us, written into our story has come. Because by his all-sufficient merit, he raises us to our heavenly throne. That's the reason to behold him. That's the reason to adore him. That's the reason to worship him, to treasure him, to savor him. So let's adore Christ, the Lord, together. Father, we thank you so much for the reality of the transforming effect of the gospel. That your birth, the, the reality of you writing yourself into the story that you wrote, transforms everything. It transforms our relationships. It transforms our expectations. It transforms our hope. It transforms everything. So, Father, I pray that you would be glorified as we adore you, Christ the Lord, who has transformed our lives and given us comfort and joy. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.